Hey, uh, quickly, I have an announcement this morning, kind of a fun announcement before we get into our, uh, our message. So over the last year, uh, our, our church board and our leadership team have been talking and praying a lot and really felt a little bit like we were sort of stuck. We're kind of in this place where, you know, just lacking some momentum. And we, we were, as we talked about that and prayed about it more, thought it would be good to uh, kind of hit the reset button, you know? Just try to, what can we do to to just bring some freshness into things? And we decided to do what we what would be in a business environment called rebranding, but really just sort of update some things around here, make some changes. And in in the process of that, uh, we talked about changing our name, the name of our church as well. We've been Portland Vineyard. We were Tualatin Valley Vineyard. Some of you remember that very early on for a few years. Then we changed it to Portland Vineyard. But uh, we are going to change our name again. If you want to go to the next slide, you can't read it very well because the font is small, but that will be our new logo. There you go. And the uh, name will be Cascade Vineyard. And uh, you can turn the lights back on now. Thank you, Elliot. And uh, here's how we came up with that. I'll tell you, it was, a f- it was kind of a fun process. We talked about changing the name, and we had a group of people all submit names. We had a, a list of about eight or nine and we we're kind of tossing them around and, you know, trying them out and uh, thinking through. And, and we couldn't come to consensus. We couldn't figure out which one we liked. Cascade was on the list, but we couldn't come to an agreement. And then, uh, so I was actually at the point of thinking, scrap the whole idea. I don't want to do it if we can't come up with a name. And then uh, last summer, during our national conference, my friend David Roos, who some of you know, he's he's a worship leader, songwriter, and pastor from Canada, and uh, David spoke at our uh, regional conference here in July, and uh, I, uh, David and I are old friends, so I drove to the airport to pick him up when he and his wife flew in, and we were driving back from the airport, and randomly, just out of the blue, he tells me this story, and he says, years and years ago, way, way back, back in the dark ages of the Vineyard Movement, he goes, John Wimber was here uh, in the Northwest, he was actually, I believe, in Vancouver, B.C., uh, doing a leadership conference. And he said at the conference uh, that the Northwest, and he called it Cascadia. He said the Cascadia region, which I don't know if you've ever looked that up. Cascadia is Oregon, Washington, and B.C., and there's actually a movement out there. It's, it's, I don't know, it's a handful of crazies, but they want to secede from the country and for that to be its own country. I don't know if we're going to go that far, but I found that out in my research. But, but anyway, back to David. David says, John kept saying, Cascadia, this region, will be the last region in, in, the, in the country where the vineyard will really take root and do well. He said, but the people that, that are here, that, that stick it out, that endure for the long haul, God's going to really bless them and move on them. Now, of course, David is in, in the BC area, and he goes, he, he tells me all this. He's telling me this, and he goes, I really believe now is that time. He, think I, he said, I really believe God is going to begin to move in the vineyard movement in the Northwest, which is an interesting thing because the Northwest has been the last area that vineyard's taken root. Uh, we, have, we have struggled. The vineyard churches have not done well in the Northwest region. Uh, we have had many, many 
church closures between, just between the Portland area and Seattle area, I don't know the number, but it's a lot of, of churches that started and, and didn't survive at all. Uh, in every, we have 16, our, our, the way we break up the country in terms of kind of our governmental structures are 16 regions in the country. And the Northwest is the only one of those regions that does not have a vineyard church of over a thousand people in it. Every other region does. So it was an interesting thing for him to say he thinks that time is now. And I told him, I go, that's interesting you're telling me this, David, because we've been talking about you know, rebranding and, and changing the name of our church. And one of the names on our list is Cascade Vineyard. And he goes, oh man, you got to do that. And he did it with that Canadian accent. You know, it's so cool. Canadian accent is really the coolest accent. Way cooler than English or any. It's, 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 uh, it's cool. So, so we kind of landed. That's sort of how I came to the conclusion that we would go with Cascade. So um, Easter Sunday, we will make that change. Coming up here in about, what is that, seven weeks or so, I think. Uh, we, will, we will switch over. What will happen is there will be some different signage, uh, different logo, different... Uh, color scheme and things like that to some of what we do, our printed material. Uh, we're re- redoing our website, so you'll, you'll see a different look to our website and some of our social media, stuff like that. Uh, what it does not mean is this, that we will not change uh, our philosophy of ministry, our value system, how we do things will still be the same. I mean, we might make some little tweaks in what happens, minor adjustments, but no major changes in terms of philosophy of ministry or, or our values. No personnel changes or anything like that. Really, this is just an opportunity for a fresh start. It's an opportunity to sort of say, let's hit the reset button and let's see what God will do. So uh, with that, I want to ask two things of you. One is to pray with us for this. Just begin to pray that God would really move through this and use what's kind of, you know, just sort of a logistical thing as a spiritual thing and, and, and really just infuse some new life with us. We, in addition to some of the rebranding, we are going to do something we've never done before. We're going to do a mailing uh, to several hundred addresses in our area with an invitation to our Easter service. And so pray with us that that will be fruitful. And that people that maybe don't uh, have a church home here in the neighborhood would, would come and join us for Easter. Uh, and then I would also ask this of you, to begin to pray about uh, who you might be able to invite on Easter Sunday to join us. Whether it's a, a neighbor or a family member or a friend or a co-worker. Don't we just throw your phones in the ground over here? What's going on? People in the front row, worship team, you can never trust them. Just joking. I love my worship team. Um, so pray with us. Pray for that, okay? And and we'll I'll remind you. We'll send a letter out and, and let me know. But I just want you to know that. So uh, as of Easter Sunday, we will be Cascade Vineyard, and I think it's going to be a, a fun time. Well, that's a positive response. I like it. All right. So with that, we have been now for uh, a while, a few months, I think, actually, uh, studying the Gospel of Luke, just kind of going verse by verse, passage by passage through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it's, I, I love the Gospel of Luke. I don't know about you guys. Uh, you know, you, you go, what's your favorite? I don't know. What's your favorite? I, of, the, of the four Gospels, I think Luke has my, always been my favorite. Um, last week, our title was Inside Out. And we talked about the work of the Holy Spirit, how the work of the Holy Spirit is an inward transformation that takes place in our lives, but it has an outward expression. God comes in and does something inside of us that brings 
that is evidenced in our lives and on the outside. So there were three things, three things that happened. The, the inward thing is this. We, we really receive blessing and affirmation of God. I shared with you, I think a couple weeks ago, my personal story when uh, I was first filled with the Holy Spirit and how I just felt that sense of God's love in my life. It was so profound. Uh, I think it was Charles Finney who who said, use the language liquid love. When the Holy Spirit filled him, it felt like liquid love. Uh, and so we really do receive that blessing and affirmation from God that uh, we are his beloved, his chosen, he's pleased with us. Second thing that happens as we receive guidance and leading of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said when the Spirit of truth comes, he'll lead you into all truth. We sang two songs this morning about the leading of the Holy Spirit, the leading of God, and I just am so blessed that we don't have to go through life uh, blindly, that we do have uh, the presence of God, the power of the Spirit to lead us and direct us. And then the third thing really uh, is probably the most outward, and that is that we're also empowered to be his witnesses. That's what we're for. We're called to be witnesses for Jesus, to, to tell people and let people know who he is and what he's about, what he's done in our lives. And uh, the Spirit gives us the power to do that. So uh, last week was Inside Out. Today's title is the opposite of that. It's Outside In. Uh, somehow we got, it got lost, but that's okay. It's Outside In, and uh, that will, the, the meaning of that will become uh, clearer to you as we go, but I want to just pray real quick, and then we will we'll dive in. Lord, I thank you so much for your presence with us today and for the opportunity to really think about moving forward in your spirit and what you have for us uh, in this year and the years ahead, uh, we are excited and we're thankful and we're blessed by your continual commitment to us and presence with us. We pray you would open your word, that it would just uh, bring value and meaning to our lives today. All right, we're going to look at the next section in Luke, beginning in chapter 4, verse 14, and I'm going I'm to tell you up front, it's a weird little passage of scripture, Okay. I don't know, is it okay if I say that? Sometimes when you read the Bible, it seems a little weird. And this is one of those places. I'm going to try to make sense of this, but uh, I think you'll see it's weird. So let's, let's go ahead and start the thing. And there are several uh, frames with that. This is where we left off last week. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. And then it continues, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. 
I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut up for three and a half years, there was a severe famine throughout the land. And yet, Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So what just happened right there? That is uh, an interesting and like I said, I, I think a little weird uh, passage. So the synagogue, Jesus comes to the synagogue, and th- that may have been a formal meeting place, uh, you know, kind of like this. It may very well have been just somebody's house. Uh, synagogue was just a place where people would gather for daily prayer meeting. Uh, and it was very likely not a huge gathering. You know, there may have been only 20 or 30 people there. Of course, there was, we didn't have, they didn't have books. There was no binding. The scroll was, uh, and, and scripture was uh, limited. Not everybody had their own Bible. Uh, it was primarily only for public use because it had to all be done by hand. And so they, there might only be one for the community. So they, they gave Jesus the scroll. The reading of the day, uh, somebody would be assigned to read. Uh, and, you know, different people would be asked to read the scripture for the day. So, uh, you know, he, he gets the scroll and he reads from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Now, Isaiah 61 is a passage that is in reference to the year of Jubilee. It says, the year of the Lord's favor. So every seven years in ancient Israel was a Sabbath year. So every seven years would be a year where they would not plant crops. They would let the ground rest uh, and where uh, work would be limited to kind of take a break, sort of a Sabbath year. And then seven sevens or 49, every seven times seven, then the 50th year was called the year of Jubilee. And on the year of Jubilee, all debts were erased. Wouldn't that be fun? You like the sound of that? All debts were erased. All prisoners were let out of prison. All property and land was returned to its original owner. It was, it was the year of Jubilee was an indication that this is a brand new day, a brand new beginning. It's a fresh start. Nothing that has been is any longer. Today is the day of God's blessing and newness and freshness. So when Isaiah prophesies about the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, he's not, he's using that metaphorically. He's not talking about the actual year of Jubilee. What he's saying is, in fact, when the Messiah comes, that's what's going to happen. When the Messiah comes, all debts will be erased. When the Messiah comes, all prisoners will be freed. When the Messiah comes, it will be a brand new day, a brand new beginning. So Jesus rolls the scroll back up and he hands it back and he sits down. Now, again, up to this point, everything that has happened is is normal. This is a routine day at the synagogue. Uh, People gather for prayer. Somebody reads scripture. That's all routine. This is normal. Nothing out of the ordinary has happened until... Jesus sits down and he says, today, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now that's not routine. Everybody had read Isaiah. Everybody knew that day would come. And now Jesus says, today is the day. The people would have been 
what? Serious? No way. Come on. They couldn't believe that today would be that day. And furthermore, they couldn't believe that Jesus was that person. They, they knew this guy. They knew Jesus. This was his hometown. Think about it. He grew up there. He was the snotty-nosed kid running around the neighborhood. He was the teenager that used to hang out on the corner. Is it this Joseph's son, they said? Could it be? They were amazed, it says. And, and really, I, I looked it up. I did a little you know, research on the words there this week. And it wasn't disbelief that they had. It really was amazement, like, wow. We know this guy. We know who he is. And yet, now he's saying he's the guy. He's the one. He, he's saying he's the Messiah. So at this point, people are amazed. They're positive. They spoke well of the gracious things he was saying. Everything was going so smoothly. And then it gets kind of weird, doesn't it? Jesus starts getting very defensive with them. Did you notice that? You'll say to me, hey, why don't you heal yourself? You'll say to me, hey, you did some miracles and healed some people in Capernaum. Why don't you do that here? He's kind of picking a fight with them a little bit. He's getting kind of defensive and, and, and critical. He's kind of pushing back a little bit, even though up till now they're very positive about what he has to say. It's at that point that things get even a little bit weirder, really. He tells them these two sort of random stories from the Old Testament. The first one, you can find the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 17. There's a famine, long famine, three and a half years. People are hungry. And Elijah goes to Zarephath, which is outside of Israel. There is a widow there, and he helps provide food for her and her family. And as Jesus relates that story, he makes a point of telling them, hey, there were lots of widows in Israel, but Elijah didn't go to them. He went to this one. And then he tells them this other story about Elisha, and that story can be found in 2 Kings 5. And this is the healing of Naaman the leper uh, in Syria. And again, he indicates that there were lots of lepers in Israel, but Elisha didn't heal any of them. He healed this guy. Now, Naaman was a Syrian, and Syria was not only outside of Israel, he was not only a foreigner, but he was actually the enemy. At the time that that happened, Israel and Syria were at war with one another. And Jesus doesn't heal, I mean, Elisha doesn't heal anybody within his own community. He goes to the enemy's camp, and heals one of their lepers. If you look at the story, it's interesting. The reason this happened, the way it happened, was that uh, Naaman's wife had a servant that was an Israelite. It was a young girl who had been taken captive. She was a slave, but she knew of Elisha. And she tells them, hey, you know, you, you, you have this disease, but there's a guy in Israel who could heal you. And if you ask, I think he will. And they go to Elisha and ask, and what does he do? Elisha, and by, by association, God, heal him. So after Jesus tells them these two stories, the whole mood of the crowd, the whole attitude changed. They were amazed, they were excited, they were positive, they were saying great things about him, and now they're mad. 
They're furious, it says. They're so furious, they run him out of town and they try to throw him off a cliff. He uses his super Jesus powers and walks back through so he doesn't get thrown off the cliff. But this is a radical turn of events. So what happened? What, what just happened right there? A couple of things I think are important. The first is this. Jesus reads from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The hand in the scroll, and he reads the passage. I would like to look at Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 for a second. Go ahead. This is Isaiah. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Check. That's what he said. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners. Check. That's what he said. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Check. That's what he said. Oh, wait. Last little section there, and the day of vengeance of our God. When Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah, he left that part off. He left that part off. Now, remember that the Jews were living under Roman rule. They wanted simply to live their lives in peace, worship as they chose to worship, and not be bothered, and yet they are living under Roman occupation, forced to pay taxes to a Roman government that they don't believe in. Uh, they're forced to follow certain rules and regulations and restrictions that the Roman Empire has placed upon them. And in their minds, when they read Isaiah, they would think, hey, when the Messiah comes, the day of the Lord's favor will be given to who? us. We are God's blessed people. And the vengeance will come to who? Them, the Romans. They're going to get theirs in the end. We're going to get blessed, but someday God's going to get paybacks and get them. They very much had an us and them sort of mentality. That's how they would have been thinking. And look, let's be a little bit honest, okay? Isn't that the way we think? Don't we very often have a sort of an us and them mindset? Uh, you know, it, it really it really is how most of us think most of the time, I think. You know, there's always those that are on the inside and those that are on the outside. Uh, we see this everywhere. I mean, <laughs> right now in the political arena, it's, it's it, you know, some sort of a mega thing. It's out of control, but it doesn't end there. It's everywhere. It's us and them. It's us and them. That's the way we think. Um, you know, sporting events. You know, it's usually there's friendly competition between, uh, you, you know, people rooting for their teams. But sometimes you see like fights break out. You know, because it's guys for this team and that guy. I'm like, really? Uh, us and them. The Jews were very much looking forward to the Romans sort of getting punished. They're the enemies of God, and they were looking forward to the day that the vengeance of their God would be exacted on the Roman Empire. Now, if it wasn't enough that Jesus left that last little bit off, then he tells them these two random stories that he kind of pulls out of Old Testament history. Uh, you know, think of everything in the Old Testament he could have referenced, but he tells them these two stories about the widow in Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. And the details of the stories are the point. That was the point that Jesus was making. 
There, there were widows in Israel that God could have blessed, but he didn't. He went to that one. There were lepers in Israel that God could have healed, but he didn't. He went to that one. Naaman was an enemy. He was one of the bad guys. Elisha healed him. This widow lived in Zarephath. She lived outside of our community. God could have healed, or God could have taken care of his own people, but he didn't. He took care of her. People are mad. They're furious. They're upset with Jesus because what he's saying here is, that's what my kingdom is going to be like. My kingdom is going to be for everybody. There's not going to be a us and them. There's not going to be any insiders or outsiders. There, there's, there's, not, there's not going to be good guys and bad guys in the kingdom of God. When my kingdom comes, it's going to be extended to everybody, whether you like them or not. The Jubilee kingdom of God will be a ministry to everyone. It'll be extended to the outsiders. It'll be extended to the least and the lost and the lonely. It'll be extended to the ostracized and the marginalized. It'll be extended to the people that nobody else likes, that nobody else understands. It'll be extended to people who are different than you and I. They weren't happy about that. They didn't like that idea. It's supposed to be our kingdom. We're the good guys. We're the ones who followed after Jesus. We're the ones that serve God. We should get the blessing. But it's clear, really, all throughout the Gospels that that's not how the kingdom of God works, is it? Who does the kingdom of God go to? Go to uh, Luke 18 real quick. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. Who is this parable addressed to? Some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself when he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. Next frame. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus is not directing his message to the evil, wicked, mean, and nasty people. He's directing his message to those that are confident in their own righteousness and who look down on others. Thank you, God, that I'm not like those guys. Conversely, the tax collector knew he was a sinner. He he knew he needed God. The tax collector knew who he was. He ripped people off for a living. That's what he did. Uh, we don't understand this, really. It doesn't compute because we don't have tax collectors. Today, we get a letter in the mail from the IRS, right? That's a tax collector. And it's, it's done that way intentionally because when you're mad about it, you're mad at some mysterious dark 
big organization out there. There's no person attached to that. There's never a name on the IRS letter. So you don't know who that is. It's just the IRS. But then the tax collector was a guy who came and knocked on your door and took your money. It was a person. It was an actual dude that you could be upset with. And his job was to rip you off. The only way he made a living was by taking more money from you than you actually owed. So he was a liar by the nature of his job. He'd have to say, oh, you owe this much when you really didn't know that much. So he really was a a, a disliked and dishonest person. I mean, again, you know, we don't fully understand. It would be sort of the equivalent of a drug dealer standing on the corner selling meth to children. That's kind of who this guy was. That's somebody that nobody likes. Nobody, nobody wants that guy around. They want to get rid of him. And that's really the way people felt about the tax collector. But the tax collector knew who he was. He knew in his own heart who he was. And he knew that there was nothing good in him. And how badly he needed the presence of God in his life. And who does Jesus say is justified? Go to uh, Matthew 21. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of the righteous, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. The Pharisees are confident of their insider status. They believe they are the good guys. They're confident in their own righteousness. We've done all the right things. We've been good people. We give. We pray. We read the Bible. We've done all the right things, and they're very confident. But again, on the other hand, the tax collectors and prostitutes, they know who they are, and they know how badly they need God. So back back to Luke 4, Jesus goes to his hometown. Prior to this event, he had healed a few people. He'd done some miracles in Capernaum. People had heard about that. And then he comes home. And really, when he shows up, it really is like, you know, hometown boy does good, right? They're excited. Hey, we know this guy. We know who he is. And now look what's happening. Amazing things are happening through his life. But then, then he he reads this scripture and he tells these stories and they realize that's not what we want to hear. That's not the way we thought it was supposed to go. You guys want to come up? Uh, here, here's the point. And, and this is where I want to close this today is this, that the good news is this. Here, here's the beauty. Here's the beauty of the kingdom of God. If you've ever felt like an outsider you're in. Especially in religious circles. If you've ever felt like, I, I don't think I belong. I don't think I fit in. Guess what? You're in. That's the beauty. of The beauty of the kingdom of God is there are no outsiders. You're in. That's the good news. The, the, good, the good news is if, if you know that I can't do this on my own, I, I need God's help in my life. You're in. That, that really is the beauty of it. I, I suppose <laughs> there could also be bad news. And, and the bad news 
would be this. And, and I would just take this as an exhortation, if you will. But the bad news is, if sometimes you still look at other people as though they are outsiders or have a tendency to look down maybe on people that are different, I think God would want you to rethink that and to realize that in his kingdom, there, there, there are no outsiders, that everybody's in. Why don't we stand? And um, I want to pray give Stephen his stand back first, though. Um, last week we prayed for the blessing and the filling of the Holy Spirit, and I want to just continue this morning. So a couple things. I, just, I want you to just get into kind of receptivity mode, if you would, and just allow the Spirit to begin to kind of speak into your heart and life. If you've ever felt at all outside, if you ever felt like, I don't fit in, I don't belong, I just want to say to you, welcome today. God bless you. Welcome. Come in. Jesus' heart is extended to you so freely and so openly today. So, Lord, I just pray that. I pray that your spirit would come and bring new life, that the year of Jubilee would come, a fresh start today. All the old things would be gone. Everything that's happened or not happened would be washed away, be cleansed this morning. And your Holy Spirit would bring a fresh new start.